0: A couple of weeks ago, we looked at Judges chapter 6, and in that chapter, uh, we saw the Midianite oppression against Israel, and God calling Gideon to save Israel from this oppression. And we looked at how unlikely a candidate Gideon was for this position, and remembering that God was seeking, as he always does, to make very clear that the glory for the victory That would come for Israel was not due to the people of Israel or any one person in Israel, but rather that the glory belongs to the God of Israel alone. And the story of Gideon continues now in chapter 7, and we'll be looking at the remainder of Gideon's story this morning as well as the story of one of Gideon's sons, Abimelech, which will take us through the end of chapter 9. So as you can see, we have a lot of ground to cover. So we're going to go ahead and jump in here into chapter 7 and read verses 1 through 8. If I could have somebody read that for us. Chapter 7, verses 1 through 8.
1: Gideon. The people with you are too many for me to give the Midianites into their hands, lest Israel boast over me, saying, "My own hand has saved me." Now therefore, proclaim <coughs> in the ears of the people, saying, "Whoever is fearful and trembling, let him return home and hurry away from Mount Gilad." Then twenty-two thousand of the people returned, and ten thousand remained. And the Lord said to Gideon, The people are still too many. Take them down to the water, and I will test them for you there. And anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall go with you, shall go with you. And any anyone of whom I say to you, This one shall not go with you, shall not go. So he brought the people down to the water, and the Lord said to Gideon, Everyone who laps the water with his tongue as a dog laps." You shall set by himself. You shall set by himself. Likewise, everyone who kneeled down to, to drink, and the number of those who lapped, putting their hand to their mouths, was three hundred men. And all the rest of the people knelt down to drink water. And the Lord said to Gideon, With the three hundred men who lapped, I will save you, and give the Midianites into your hand, and let all the others go, every man to his so the people took provisions in their hands and their trumpets, and he sent all the rest of Israel, every man to his camp, but retained the 300 men. And the camp of Midian was below him
0: in the valley. Okay, thanks, Stacy. So looking on your outline outline there, the first point there is the necessity of weakness. And what we see in this section is the Lord making sure that verse 2 Does not happen. Okay, verse 2, letting Israel say, My own hand has saved me. Okay, the Lord is making sure that that does not happen. That Israel doesn't have any ground for boasting before the Lord because of the victory that he's about to win for them. So, you know, we, we see this all throughout Scripture that God is passionate for his glory and that he will not give his glory to another. And so he starts by taking Gideon's army from. 32,000 down to 10,000. Now, later on in the narrative, we're going to see that the Midianite army was probably upwards of about 135,000, okay? So you're starting with 32,000 versus 135,000 already, right? So about one to four or so, and then God says, too many. Cuts it down, 22,000 go home, now he's down to 10,000. And you can probably imagine Gideon struggling with this as he's trying to think through, okay, We're at a disadvantage already, and now we're really at a disadvantage. What is the Lord doing? There goes two-thirds of my army just went home, right? But at least I still have 10,000 left, right? Well, nope, that's still too many. So God brings forth another test and reduces the army from 10,000 to 300 men. So when you do the math there, from the 32,000, 99.99% of your original army is gone, and you're left with the 300 men. Now, I don't know if you've heard this story before or uh, you've thought through it, but some have sought to see this as the Lord cutting away the dross of Gideon's army and bringing out the pure gold of the men who remained, these 300 men. But I don't think that's the right interpretation, and here's here's why. Would there not be more ground for boasting and not less among the 300 men if because of their strength and courage, if because they are the cream of the crop, they defeated the Midianite army? I think about my own self having played sports a lot throughout my life. And when you come to that position where there's an odd number of people who say, all right, you know what, listen, us, the, the two of us will take on the seven of you. That didn't provo- provide less grounds for boasting if those two won over those seven. It was like, we beat you and we were outnumbered by you know, five, right? So there's, there's that mindset there. And I think the rest of the narrative speaks to that interpretation as well. That this wasn't God just removing it all. Now, I've got the 300 best men here to do this. Um, Dale Davis, in his commentary, I think did a really good job of, some have looked at this, well, the way that they drank the water shows that these were the guys, but you have to read into that in order to come to that understanding, that these were the the warriors who were keeping their head up, looking out for the enemy, and and everything like that. So, I, I don't think that God was Reducing these guys to just bring out the cream of the crop and bring the 300 best men to to Gideon. Rather, I think what the point that the Lord is making here is again to display the inadequacy of man in order to magnify the adequacy of God. To make it clear to Gideon and to these men, this is Yahweh's victory. The Lord is going to do this. And like I said, later on in this text, especially when we see how they went into battle and what they went into battle with, I think makes it even more clear for us that these, these men knew this is the Lord's, the Lord's doing. And again, one, one, a couple passages that we've seen throughout this uh, study in the book of Judges uh, that I've referred to, is this aspect of God choosing weakness to magnify his strength. In 1 Corinthians 1, 27-29, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. God chose what is weak in the world to shame the strong. God chose what is low and despised in the world, even things that are not, to bring to nothing things that are, so that, so here's the reason for it, no human being might boast in the presence of of God as Paul was going through his own affliction the Lord responded with this my power is made perfect in weakness okay so i i think a good lesson for us to remember here is that God will often strip away whatever it is that we are trusting in apart from him to do what he has called us to do that we will not be dependent upon Ourselves, but dependent upon him alone, and in that dependence upon him, he will get the glory that he alone deserves. Now, when we look at this story as it continues here, as we have this kind of introductory passage here in verses 1 through 8, when we look here at verses 9 through 23, we're going to see the encouragement in weakness, which is the next point on your outline there, and this covers verses 9 through 23. This gets at the heart of what I think is going on in verses 1 through 8, when God's talking about reducing the number of these men and sending them into battle and how he sends them into battle. So let's look at verses 9 through 23, and maybe we'll go ahead and break this up. If I can get somebody to read verses 9 through 18 and then somebody verses 19 through 23, who would read 9 through 18 for us? Diana Lynn, thank you. And then how about 19 through 23? Amanda, thanks.
2: That same night the Lord said to him,
3: Arise, go down against the camp, for I have given it into your hand. But if you are afraid to go down, go down to the camp with Pura, your servant, and you shall hear what they say. And afterward... Your hand shall be strengthened to go down against the camp. Then he went down with Purah, his servant, to the outpost of the armed men who were in the camp. And the Midianites and the Amalekites and all the people of the east lay along the valley like locusts in abundance. And their camels were without number as the sand that is on the seashore in abundance. When Gideon came... Behold, a man was telling a dream to his comrade, and he said, Behold, I dreamed a dream, and behold, a cake of barley bread tumbled into the camp of Minion and came to the tent and struck it so that it fell and turned it upside down so that the tent lay flat. And his comrade answered, This is no other than the sword of Gideon, the son of Joash, A man of Israel, God has given into his hand Midian and all the camp. As soon as Gideon heard the telling of the dream and its interpretation, he worshipped. And he returned to the camp of Israel and said, Arise, for the Lord has given the host of Midian into your hand." And he divided the 300 men into three companies and put trumpets in the hands of all of them and empty jars with torches inside the jars. And he said to them, Look at me, and do likewise. When I come to the outskirts of the camp, do as I do. When I blow the trumpet, I and all who are with me, then blow the trumpets also on every side of all the camp and shout for the Lord and for Gideon. So Gideon and the hundred men who were with him
2: came to the outskirts, They had just posted the watch, and they blew the trumpets and smashed the pitchers that were in their hands. When the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the pitchers, they held the torches in their left hands and the trumpets in their right hands, for blowing and cried, "A sword for the Lord and for Gideon!" And each
0: stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran,
2: crying out as they fled. And when they blew three hundred trumpets, the Lord set the sword of one against another, even throughout the whole army. And the army fled as far as beth toward Zerurah, as far as the edge of Abel-Napolim by Tabath. And the men of Israel were summoned from Naphtali and Asher and Manasseh, and they pursued the
0: Okay, good, thanks. So here, what we see at the very outset, as well as another compassionate display of the condescension by our Lord. Notice in verse 9 that he gives Gideon a command to go down against the camp of the Midianites. But notice this also. He also gives him the opportunity to still his trembling, fearful heart and to strengthen his weak hands. All right? So Gideon takes him up on this offer. So we know he was indeed fearful. He said, if you're fearful, but if you're fearful, go ahead and take Purah with you. And what does he do? He takes Purah. <laughs> He's like, yeah, I am, I am fearful going into this into this battle. Um, And sure enough, what we see happen is the word that the Lord causes Gideon to hear is a word that does strengthen his hands and causes him to worship the Lord and to move forward into battle. And, you know, what we can see there is God knows that as his servants we are often weak and fearful and he deals with us compassionately in order to reorient our hearts he, he turns us back constantly to his word in order to strengthen us i think we see this uh, a good example of this in 1st Thessalonians where there was some confusion going on there uh, about the return of Christ and those who had died and what happened to them and and so on and so forth and what you have Paul saying there at First Thessalonians chapter 4 verse 18 is, he says, therefore, encourage one another with these words. Okay? In other words, the word of God is coming and it's reorienting their minds and it's bringing clarity to their situation and it's strengthening their hearts. And then you see the same thing in chapter 5 in 1 Thessalonians 5 verse 11 where it says the same thing, encourage one another with these words. So this is the way that God works, is to bring encouragement to our hearts through his words as he condescends to us in his his weakness. So the word of God is meant to be the means by which our hearts are strengthened, right? Gideon's not, hey, just look within Gideon, you know, suck it up, man, let's go, we're going into battle. It's no, look away from yourself, Gideon, look to the Lord, he is your your strength, So it's, it's counter-cultural, right? The, the culture is constantly telling you, hey, look within, find your strength within. You can be all that you want to be. And God's saying, look to me. I will give you the encouragement and the strength you need to do, the tasks that you need to do. Another passage that kind of speaks to that end is in Isaiah chapter 50. I'm just going to turn there real quick and, and read it. Uh, you can turn there if you would like. But Isaiah 50, uh, verse 4. where Isaiah testifies and says this, The Lord has given me the tongue of those who are taught, and then here's the reason for it, that I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary. Isn't that a great passage? That I may know how to sustain with a word him who is weary and then he says morning by morning he he awakens he awakens my ear to hear as those who are taught right so isaiah was seeing that same mindset the lord's given me his words to sustain with a word him who is weary and that's the power of the word of god right you see that in the case with gideon gideon go listen to what these men are saying and be strengthened by what i'm going to allow you to hear so the word of god sustains the weary, just like Gideon. And indeed it did. Notice that the promise of the Lord came true. He said, it, you will be strengthened by it. And sure enough, what happened? Gideon was strengthened by it. Right? So we do well to listen listen to the Lord. And then in the rest of that section, in verses 16 through 23, you have this victory report of Gideon and his men. And, and it's really, to me, evidence for us that the Lord dwindled down Gideon's army to 300 in order to make certain that they knew that this was the Lord's doing and that he alone would get the glory. If you notice here, the Israelite army is told to carry a few things into battle. They take the trumpet, they take the jar or the pitcher, and they take a torch. Now, something seems to be missing to me here if you're going into battle. A sword. You think that would be a good thing to take into, into battle, Right? And so, what we see here in verses 20 through 22, take a look at this again, verses 20 through 22. Then the three companies blew the trumpets and broke the jars. They held in their left hands the, tor- the torches, and in their right hands the trumpets to blow. And they cried out, a sword for the Lord and for Gideon. They don't have any swords. okay? But watch what happens. Every man... Stood in his place around the camp, and all the army ran. They cried out and fled. When they blew the three hundred trumpets, watch this. The Lord set every man's sword against his comrade and against all the army. And the army fled as far as Shittah towards Zerah, as far as the border of Abel, Meholah by Tabath. Right? So you see this display. It's the Lord who takes the enemy's swords and uses them against themselves. It's very clear that this is the Lord's doing, right? You're not coming home from that victory party. Man, we we just took it down on the Midianites. like, no, you guys, you you won't believe what happened. We went into battle. We had a torch. We had a pitcher or a jar, right? We had trumpets, and we won. (laughs) Glory to God. And so I think the Lord is making clear, as he does throughout the rest of the scriptures, that this is the Lord's doing, and all the glory belongs to him. And it should encourage us greatly in how we live our lives and in our ministry before the Lord. That yes, we are inadequate within ourselves. We don't have the resources in and of ourselves, but we trust that God supplies whatever it is that we need in order to bring him glory on this earth, and to point away from ourselves and to him. Amen? So let's look now at the third... Just a comment? Yes, Dave, go ahead. Um, I agree totally with what you say about the Lord yes. and his power here. Yes. But might there be something else going on with Gideon? Because yeah. I'll use your Isaiah verse. Yeah. If you go to 5, it yep. says, The Lord has opened my ear, and I was not rebellious, and I turned not backward. Yes. But the
4: whole story of Gideon from the beginning, when yeah. he's fearful about what's going on, he's fearful yeah. of, the,
0: of, of his friends. Yeah. He, he has to do the, the fleece. Yeah. That's
4: basically a progression. He's not
0: he's not learning anything. <laughs> right, right. And yeah. He, I, and in fact if you go to the end of the story when he builds the ephod yes. and
4: he whoremongers uh, ideologically after other gods, yes. it's a downward spiral. And if you is. look at that in the whole, con- the whole context of the judges. Yes. I mean, starting probably about four or five with Deborah, everything
0: is downhill. Yes. Everything's going downhill. Yep. And in fact, Gideon's not remembering what the Lord taught him. Right. And he
5: continues to
4: basically show fear and weakness.
0: Yes, he does. Yeah, no question. Yeah, we're going to get to that as well, and that especially with the Ephod and and looking at that. But yeah, great, great point. Um, the Lord is magnifying magnifying himself in the in the weakness of of men, and in in disobedience, certainly. So let's take a look here at the, the third point on our outline, which is the cause of weakness. And this begins in chapter 7, verse 24, and it runs through chapter 8, verse 21. So there's a pretty lengthy section here. So let's break this up again. If I can have somebody read Judges 7, 24 through 8, 3. Who would take that section? 7.24 7.24 through 8.3, J. thank you. And then 8.4 through 8.17, who could read that? 8.4 through 8.17, anybody? Dave, okay, and then the last section there would be 18 through 21. Who could take that? Anybody? All right, I'll read it. Okay, all right, Amanda, thanks. Okay, go ahead, Jay.
6: Midian sent messengers throughout all the hill country of Ephraim, saying, Come down against the Midianites and capture the waters against them as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan. So all the men of Ephraim were called out, and they captured the waters as far as Beth Barah, and also the Jordan. And they captured the two princes of Midian, Oreb and Zeb. They killed Oreb at the rock of Oreb, and Zeb uh, they killed at the winepress of Zeb. And they pursued Midian, and they brought the heads of Orb and Zeke to Gideon across the Jordan. Then the men of Ephraim said to him, What is this that you have done to us, not to call us when you were to fight against the Midian, uh, against Midian? And they, they accused him fiercely. And he said to them, What have I done in coming in compar- sorry, what have I done in comparison with you? Is not the gleaning of the grapes of Ephraim better than the grape harvest of Abed, God has given into your hands the princes of Midian, Oreb, and Zed. What have I been able to do in comparison with you? Then their anger against him subsided when he said, said this.
4: And Gideon came to the Jordan and crossed over. He and the three hundred men who were with him, exhausted yet pursuing. So he said to the men of Succoth, Please give loaves of bread to the people who follow me, for they are exhausted, and I am pursuing after Ziba and Zalmunna the kings of Midian, and the officials of Sukkoth said, Are the hands of Zeb and Zamun already in your hand, that we should give bread to your army? So Gideon said, Well then, when the Lord has given Zeb and Zamun into my hand, I will flail your flesh with the thorns of the wilderness and with briars. From there he went up to Penuel and spoke to them in the same way, and the men of Penuel answered him as the men of Sukkoth had answered and he said to the men of Penuel, When I come again in peace, I will break down this tower. Now Zeb and Zalmunna were in Karkor with their army, about 15,000 men, all who were left of all the army of the people of the east, for there had fallen 120,000 men who, who drew the sword. And Gideon went up by the way of the tent dwellers, where east of Nobath and Jacobah, and attacked the army for the army felt secure. And Zeb and Zalmunna fled. And he pursued them, and he captured the two kings of Midian, Zeben Zalmunah, and he threw all the army into a panic. Then Gideon, the son of Joash, returned after the battle of the ascent of Harris, and he captured the young man of Sukkoth and questioned him, and he wrote down for him the officials and elders of Sukkoth, seventy-seven men. And he came to the men of Sukkoth and said, Behold, Zeben Zalmunah, about whom you taunted me, saying, Are the hands of Zeben Zalmunah already in your hand, that we should give bread to your men who are exhausted? This should have been questioned by prayer. Right?
6: <laughs> and he took the elders
4: of the city, and he took the thorns of the wilderness and briars with them, taught them in a second of the lesson, and he broke down the tower of Penuel and killed the men of the city.
2: Then so he said to Ziba and Zemunah, What kind of men were they whom you killed at Fibor? And they said, They were like you. Each one resembling them were the son of a king. And he said, They were my brothers, the sons of my mother. As the Lord lives, if only you had let them live, I would not kill you. So he said to Jethro, his firstborn, Rise, kill them. But the youth did not draw his sword, for he was afraid, because he was still a youth. Then Ziba and Zalmunna said, Rise up yourself and fall on us, for out of man so is his strength. So Hedin arose and killed Ziba and Zalmunna, and took the crescent ornaments which were on their camel's necks.
0: Okay. Thank you for helping to read that. So what we see here is, when we looked previously at the narrative, we saw a weakness that was, that was almost a positive weakness or a good weakness in that it magnified the strength of God, but this weakness that we see here is really a self-inflicted weakness, namely we see infighting among the people of God. First, we have this very self-centered group with this undue, inflated estimation of themselves, the men of Ephraim. They confront Gideon after they killed the two princes of Midian, wondering why they were not summoned at the beginning of this conquest. They feel snubbed, apparently. They're pretty upset about this, that they were just basically brought in at the last minute to help conquer the enemies of Israel. And and you notice here Gideon becomes very diplomatic at this point in seeking to soothe their, their anger. And he strokes their inflated ego by exalting their heroic intervention in this battle. And then we see Gideon turn from this, almost like this political candidate using flowery speech to calm the anger of his opponents, and, and you see him turn into this bloodthirsty man who is driven by personal vengeance. Gideon makes a request from his countrymen, first to the men of Succoth, and then to the men of Penuel and Both groups respond negatively to Gideon's request, more than likely out of fear that Gideon and his army may not completely conquer the Midianites, and if they didn't, the Midianites would come back for vengeance upon these, these two groups. Now, ironically, as the story goes, Succoth and Penuel sought to avoid the wrath of Midian in doing so, and instead they incurred the wrath of Gideon. So we see here this breakdown among the people of god over here you have ephraim concerned with their own status and their desire to be more involved with this conquest and over here you have Succoth and penuel concerned with their own safety and seeking not to be involved in any way in this conquest and you have gideon just merciless toward his own countrymen forgetting the patience and the mercy of god toward him and seemingly acting completely from a standpoint of personal vengeance rather than out of a genuine concern to see God glorified. And what you have as a result is a divided, fragmented, broken Israel. And I think one of the things that we can learn from this section as we, as we look at this exchange between those who should have been encouraging one another In fighting for God against his enemies, and I think we've all probably experienced this, is that sometimes the people of God, those that you come to, to think you might get encouragement, sometimes the people of God will certainly let you down one way or another, including you letting others down, right? We don't always act as we ought to. Sometimes we're like the men of Ephraim, and we have a far greater view of ourselves than we should, and we seek our own status among the people of God. And we can also be like the men of Succoth and Penuel, who have a far greater concern for their own safety than seeking to risk their safety to help the people of God. So I think those are, as we look at that, we can see, help me to avoid those errors, right? And we see this throughout the New Testament as well. Uh, you may remember in Mark chapter 10, you can just kind of jot this down if you want, but um, uh, you have James and John coming to Jesus, hey, we want to sit at your right hand and at your left, and Jesus brings back their their minds to a proper thinking, essentially saying, listen, I, I, I didn't come that way. The, the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life. That's how the Gentiles act, right? They want to lord it over over others, but that's not how we are to, to behave in the body of Christ. And then Paul has this testimony in 2 Timothy 4.16 that everyone had abandoned him, right? Nobody was willing to, to stand with him, but the Lord was standing with him. It was a sad testimony that Paul would have to give that nobody was willing to risk their own safety to seek to help help him in his time, time of need. So I think we can draw out that principle from that section and see help us to see both Ephraim and the men of Succoth and Penuel and to avoid those things. But it also shows us a lot, as Dave was saying earlier, about Gideon's character and his own mindset in this, right? So you, you have this weak and timid man at points and then he just bursts on the scene and all of a sudden he is just bloodthirsty and I'm coming back here and I'm bringing vengeance upon you. So you see these extremes here with, with Gideon, okay? Uh, Just to kind of keep things going here, because we do have to cover three chapters today. Uh, Moving on to this next point here, number four on your outline, is what we see in verses 22 through 32 is disappointing leadership and tragic loss. Disappointing leadership and tragic loss. So let's go ahead and read verses 22 through 32. If somebody can read that for us, 22 through 32.
5: Of you that each of you would give me the earring from his plunder, for they had gold earrings because they were Ishmaelites. So they answered, "We will gladly give them." And they spread out a garment, and each man threw into it an earring from his plunder. Now the weight of the gold earrings that he requested was one thousand seven hundred shekels of gold, besides the crescent <clears throat> ornaments, pendants, and purple robes which were on the kings of Midian. And beside the chains, there were that were around the camel's necks. Then Gideon made it into an ephod and sent it up into a city, Warfar. And all Israel played the harlot with it there. It became a snare to Gideon and to his house. Thus Midian was subdued before the children of Israel, so that they lifted their heads no more, and the country was quiet for forty years in the days of Gideon. Then Jerubbaal, the son of Joash went and dwelt in his own house. Gideon had seven seventy sons who were his offspring, for he had many wives, and his concubine, who was in Shechem, also bore him a son, whose name he called Abimelech. Now Gideon, the son of Joash, died at a good old age, and was buried in the tomb of Joash's father in Oprah of the Abyssalites.
0: Okay, thank you. Let's see. So, what we see in the beginning of this section here is the people want Gideon to kind of set up a dynasty, starting with himself and then his son and then his grandson. And the reason that they want this is because, as they say, Gideon has saved them from the hand of Midian. It should be noted here that the people's praise is certainly misplaced, right? Rather than praising the Lord for using his servant Gideon to save the people, the people are all about giving praise to Gideon. And so, Gideon's response to this, on the surface, right, seems like the appropriate response. It will not be me or my descendants who rule over you, but the Lord will rule over you. Now, there's much speculation about the sincerity of Gideon's words here. And They are somewhat warranted because of how we see Gideon responding after he makes this seemingly humble statement. First, Gideon tells the people to bring him the earrings from the spoil of the war, and then he turns them into an ephod. Now, the ephod, you may recall, was that piece of clothing to be worn only by the high priest as he entered into the presence of God on behalf of the people. And this may tell us something about Gideon's heart here, that, that he saw himself in some capacity as the representative of God's people, much like a king. And the problem was this with this, obviously, is that Gideon didn't have the authority to simply make an ephod for himself. And so he sets this up in his city, and naturally, what happens? The people of Israel. Play the harlot. Some translations say others say the people of Israel whore after it as they have the false gods of the surrounding peoples. And rather than worshiping the Lord, they end up worshiping a piece of clothing made by God's servant, Gideon. And, and another sign here that may be telling for us about Gideon's heart is that he names his son from his concubine in, in Shechem. He names his son Abimelech. Abimelech means my father is king. That's an interesting name to give to your son, unless you are a king. <laughs> so I think it kind of gives us some indication as to what's going on here in Gideon's heart. But I don't want to read too much into the text. We can't read Gideon's heart. But we do know this, that he failed to do the most important thing here. And that was to point the people away from himself, away from idolatry in any sense, and to the Lord who rescued them from the Midianites. And I think one massive point of application that we can learn from this as Gideon was a leader in some sense, the servant of God, and there are times where God's servants are inconsistent and disappointing to one degree or another. You've probably seen this uh, in your own life. And this in no way excuses the sins or errors of the leaders of God like Gideon, but it does remind us, it does drive us back to remember that there is only one leader of God, the true leader, the the only one head of the church, listen, who will never disappoint and never fail the people of God, and that is the Lord Jesus Christ. He alone stands as the true servant, as the true leader to whom we can look and to whom we are to look and can have full confidence that he will complete all that he has said. There won't be any mixed motives there, but there will be motives to bring God glory and to bless the people of God and to help the people of God. And then I think the other point that we see from this section, as Dave kind of mentioned as well, is as you see judges just with this just constantly going downhill, is that what it says here in, the, in this text is that the land had rest for 40 years. This is the last time. You may remember that we've seen that a few times in the book of Judges up to this point. Well, here in chapter 8, in verse 28, where it says, and the land had rest 40 years in the days of Gideon, that's the last time you see that statement in the book of Judges. Israel is never said to be given rest again from her enemies.
4: There's another interesting little twist here. So yeah. He uses Jer-
0: Jeroboam yeah.
4: at the beginning of this whole sequence here, but he immediately goes back to Gideon. And Jeroboam yeah. from six means let the let the ball contend against him. Correct. And it was used in a positive sense yep. in six, Yep. and now it's used in a negative sense.
0: Yes, it is, and exactly. That's right, absolutely. Yeah, very important to see, you know, God just doesn't change names for any, any reason. There's purpose behind that. So, the, the land is not going to experience rest again. And as Dave mentioned, what we see is this continual downward spiral of Israel's unfaithfulness to God. Israel has failed to take heed to the reality that the kindness, patience, and long-suffering of God was meant to lead them to repentance and as bad as things have been up to this point in the history of Israel they are about to get worse if you can believe that and, and and the reason for that is the one whose name means my father is king is about to become king himself self-appointed or with much political persuasion and that brings us into this next section here in verses 30 through, 33 through 35. I'll go ahead and, and read that. And I'm sorry that I'm going to have to move kind of quickly to, to work through this next section, but we've got to kind of stay on task here. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel, notice the immediacy here as well. As soon as Gideon died, the people of Israel turned again and whored after the Baals and made Baal-Bareth their God. And the people of Israel did not remember the Lord their God who had delivered them from the hand of all their enemies on every side. And they did not show steadfast love to the family of Jeroboam, that is, Gideon, in return for all the good that he had done to Israel. Now, when the scripture says here that Israel did not remember the Lord, again, we should understand that in the sense that they did not acknowledge the Lord or the work that he had done for Israel. It wasn't as if, we, don't, we have no idea who the Lord is. In other words, they didn't have any regard for the Lord. It had no meaning to them. They didn't take heed to the Lord and his ways. It had no influence on them at all. They willingly chose to disregard the Lord and all the work that he had done for them through his servant Gideon. And because of that, in disregarding the Lord, they disregarded the servant of the Lord as well. So Israel had certainly been delivered from a, for a time from their physical enemies But listen, the enemy within, that is this rebellious, unconverted heart, still had yet to be transformed despite all the wonderful works of God. And so this text speaks much, I think, to the depravity of man. That man can behold the wonderful works of God, see his power and his glory, and be totally unmoved to worship. Indeed, this is what we see when our Lord Jesus came to earth, is it not? God, in the flesh, shows up. And rather than being worshipped by all as he deserved, he's worshipped by a very small fragment of society, and he's despised and rejected by the rest. Okay. Yes, Audrey. I don't want to fit you off before, Sure. But I yep. have to say something.
5: Mm-hmm. Because of my background, mm-hmm. I'm more sensitive. Yeah. Here are we. We sit in the church every week. Yeah. We hear the word of God preached right. every week, and yep. sometimes we read our Bibles, mm-hmm. and we still fall.
0: Oh yeah, absolutely.
5: And here are these people who were basically very, very primitive, right. and right. we have to take that into account when we look at them.
0: Sure. When
5: compared to how much feeding we get. Right. And how little they get. Yes, they had
0: God. God was there. But they didn't have the teaching. They didn't have the scriptures. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, we have have the. We need to keep that in mind. Sure, sure. Yeah. No doubt. Okay. No problem. Ron, you know I can't. Yeah. Add on to that. I'm just sitting here thinking what we
1: went through in World War II. And here we are, we're going right back to horrid after looking for one man that's going to lead us out of the problem that we got. Right. We're exactly where we were like this.
0: Yeah, yeah, unless, yeah, I mean, unless the heart of man is changed, nothing will change. It won't happen. I mean, you see that all throughout the scriptures. God can show up and do mighty works in many ways, and the the heart of man will not respond to the wonderful works of God unless God touches the heart, regenerates the person, and gives him eyes to. Yeah, we're definitely, uh, yeah, we're, we. That's that's what idolatry is. You look away from God to something else, and. Uh, we're idolatrous by nature, and even as, as believers, we're constantly warring against various idols that challenge and call for our worship uh, to turn away from, from God. So, uh, yeah, there's, no, there, there's much to learn in this. I don't want to distance ourselves from this as if, hey, we've got it all figured out. I mean, we, we see ourselves in this and that we just have hearts at times that, that turn away from uh, from the Lord as the as the hymn says, we're prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. You know, prone to leave the God I love. Tim. Who's this
1: Baal Bareth God that chosen to
0: serve? Yeah, I don't know definitively other than within the system of Baal worship and Ashtareth worship, dealing with agriculture and crops and fertility, another God in that sect, so to speak. But it doesn't definitively nail it down for us. In my studies, I didn't come across that gave anything indicative other than the reality that just another one of the gods in the midst of that system of crop, fertility, land, land worship. Erit, yep. usually,
4: it's Hebrew for covenant. Mm-hmm. You find it right at the beginning of Genesis. Yep. So
0: this is a god they've made covenant with. Gotcha. Yeah. yeah. So, yeah, another... Display of their idolatry, you know, towards towards him. Okay, well here's what we're going to do. Yeah, go ahead. I
6: think we should also overlook the huge sin of polygamy.
0: Right. That yeah. Fell into. Yes. And then
6: he had not only that, but he had another illicit relationship, which produced a Right. And to tie in with what was said earlier uh, about our own country, uh, polygamy is not far off. We are already losing the principle of marriage. More people are living together than are married at this point in time. And yeah. we're falling into, falling into more and more and more sin right. of every type. Right. So this shouldn't surprise us. No,
0: it shouldn't. You know, and I think there's, at, at times, we have to be careful that we don't put undue expectation upon the government. The government was never meant to be the means by which the country was changed in that sense. It is the, the, the church's job is to preach the gospel, not the government's job. The government's job. So we have to make sure that we keep that in its proper its proper context. In Romans the thirteen, the say say that again.
6: The people return
0: from God. Correct. Yeah. It's it's the it's the heart of man. I mean, we could we could set up all these moral regulations and be a very moral people who are on our way to hell. <laughs> you know, unless the heart of man is changed you know so so revolution in our in our country is not going to begin in the government it's going to begin in the pulpits of the churches where the word of god is preached so we have to we have to get back to that and that's what these people needed was to bow to the uh, to the word of god as it is as it is given Reminds okay me of saul. when samuel anointed saul yeah he was good to look at they, want, they didn't want god they wanted a man right That's right. It's the same thing today. Yep, exactly. And there's only one man, and that is the God-man, who will will faithfully faithfully lead us. So what we're going to do here, I'm going to stop. I intended to get through chapter 9. I'm going to hand that off to Will next week. He'll be delighted to know I have all the study done for him, all the notes prepared. I'm going to hand that over to him, let him uh, cover that. And uh, I don't want to try to plow through that since we don't really have time to do that. So... Let me uh, thank you guys for your patience and all the comments, really good, and uh, just so the Lord would help us to, to see these things, apply these things, be instructed by it, have our own hearts changed, and be encouraged, and for the Lord to help us to see in our own hearts where these weaknesses are uh, within, us, within us as well. So we'll pick up next week uh, with Abimelech's Conspiracy, that'll start at uh, chapter, chapter 9 there. And uh, we'll work through the story of Abimelech, and then we'll see if Will has any time to take us any, any further than that. Okay? Let's, let's pray. Father, we do want to thank you for uh, your word. And as we know from scripture, Lord, that you have given these things to instruct us, that these things happened as examples for us, Lord, that, that we would learn from them. Father, we pray for the church of Jesus Christ. We ask that you would keep us faithful to your word, Lord, that you would keep our hearts in a place of humility before you. Uh, Father, that we would not err on the side of Ephraim and have an undue estimation of ourselves within the body of Christ. We would not err with Penuel and Succoth, the men of those, uh, those tribes. Lord, we ask that you would help us to lay down our lives for the glory of your name and for the good of your people, Lord, that you would be glorified. And Father, as we think about this and we do think about our own nation, we lift our nation before you, Lord. And above all things, we pray for the proclaimers of the word of God in our land, that they would be faithful to the word of God even this morning, Lord, as many pulpits will be opening your word, cause them to be faithful to your word, that your people would be instructed and empowered to reach this lost world that is around us, Lord. Uh, It breaks our heart just to see the things that are happening around us. But Father, we're not in despair. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation. And Father, we know you change a heart at a time for your glory, and that's how you bring forth Reformation, And so we ask that you would work to that end. We pray for the Christians within our government, Lord, that you would cause them to stand firmly and not waver upon their convictions based on the word of God, whatever that may cost. And Father, we do pray, as your word tells us in 1 Timothy 2, for kings and all who are in high places. We lift up our president to you, our vice president, all who are in our government, Lord, who don't know you. We beg before your throne that you would give them ears to hear the gospel of Jesus Christ and that you would cause them to bow the knee joyfully to you, that your name would be honored. So we ask that you would work to that end, Father. We thank you for this time together. Help us to look within as well, Lord, and to see our own idolatry, the, own, the things that we chase on a continual basis. Help us, Lord. Uh, please, we desperately need you. And we thank you for that in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you. Thank you.